In this episode, you will learn about Swirl, meta search engine with large language models for your siloed data. Here you can see how it works for uh, the summary transcript of this episode created with the tool uh, called ClearWord. Hello there, Vector Podcast Season 2. And today I'm super excited to be talking to Sid Propstein, the creator of Swirl Search. It's a federated vector search engine, if I'm correct, but I, I want to hear more from Sid himself. Hello, Sid. How are you? I'm doing great. It's really great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for joining. I, I'm sure you are very busy building Swirl, um, and I'm really curious to learn more about it uh, amidst all the discussion, you know, how ChatGPT is going to change things, you know, is it going to conquer us or whatnot? Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm really interested to hear how you guys are doing, how you guys are building this. Um, and traditionally, we start with your background because we really want to know how you got here. Absolutely. No, it, and it's been an interesting journey. Um, Swirl actually is my uh, the, the 12th venture I've been lucky enough to work on. I started actually at... Uh, a free email company called Freemark Mail. You might remember uh, Juno, our vastly more successful competitor. As a, it was a great, great lesson in, in marketing and customer acquisition. But long story short, you know, uh, my dad was an MIT professor and he uh, suggested, or he was interested in computers and somewhere around, uh, it was too long ago, but I was about 12 and I, I picked up a TRS-80 with 16K of RAM, I think, and a cassette play, uh, cassette tape for storage. And we went to a couple of class. actually we went to two classes together and then he, he didn't want to do it anymore, but I stayed with it. And uh, I have always loved, you know, make getting that computer to do things uh, that we wanted it to. Um, and so I, I guess ever since then I've followed the tech path. So I was lucky enough uh, to do my undergrad at MIT. I actually have an MBA, though. I'm one of those MBA uh, CTOs. And mostly I've worked, uh, you know, building software and, and leading teams to, to build products and services. So some of them have been um, Ativio, which is now actually ServiceNow, which is obviously one of the, the unicorns out there. They really totally disrupted the uh, knowledge base and help desk space. And uh, that it's an incredible, you know, uh, application of, of uh Interesting core technology, right? At the beginning, right when 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 things were whiteboardy. Um, I've worked in a couple of other search companies, uh, with some other search companies. I was lucky to spend a little time with Masood Zarabian over at BA Insight, which um, was a very cool, and also Jeff Fried, very cool company. And it's interesting. I know those guys back from Fast, another company that I worked at uh, now Microsoft. You know, Fast was one of the early players in enterprise search that had. Had an excellent product uh, that scaled, and right as Google was sort of becoming a household name and disintermediating everybody, disintermediating everybody, um, we had the tool to build the catalog, the e-catalog, right? That um, mostly for publishers, and but then it really spread out and started to affect intranets. And it was truly there that I saw the power of of search and how it could change almost everything from the business perspective. You know, business intelligence and reporting and all of these systems that have been around for 70, 80 years, they're what we settle for. But everybody, you know, from Brennan Page on, right, and way before that, we're all inspired by that Star Trek computer 
why can't we just ask? It, you know, seems like it's not that hard. And now, of course, not to give away the lead, right? But there's definitely something doing that. And it's been a long time coming. But that is not structured data. Well, let's not argue about the semantics, but it's not what people refer to as structured. It's not database data metrics and KPIs and sales numbers and things like that. I think that it was really at at Fast and also at Northern Light Technology, which is still going strong, by the way, with some fantastic indexing search. And now they're doing question answering. First place I really touched search, right, was at Northern Light. It's the human interface. And we feel like it should be coming along faster. And now <clears throat> the text, after many years of indexing and vector search, right, and the advances driven by Google so much, right, transformer architectures and vectors and that has all come together into a pretty amazing place. And so long story short, that background led me to create Swirl because I noticed a couple things. It really came down to three things. One is that there's there are silos, super silos like ServiceNow. ServiceNow really did get a lot of the uh, knowledge bases and a lot of those, a, a lot of the uh, the help desk, you know, the tickets, basically the streams of tickets. Um, M365 kind of won the files race, at least, right, along with email. And, and I guess they've done very well. It's obviously very impressive performance to build teams to the large community that it has developed. So uh, and then there are others, right? There's certainly Salesforce is a great example of where most of the CRM data now lives. Snowflake's another one. You can't really get a copy of these. I mean, moving the data out from Snowflake is relatively easy, but the others... There's a complicated API there. Salesforce has thousands of tables. So you can't really get that data anymore, but yet it has some of the most important ideas, concepts, and knowledge in your entire company. So that's when I realized an old, something that had been tried before, MetaSearch, right, or Federated Search. I think MetaSearch is clearer because now sometimes people say Federated Search is about e-commerce federation. The MetaSearch is... All, was hard to do because of connectivity, right? Like it could take you months to just get somebody to change a network thing or to put a VPN in place, right? Or change permissions. And that was expensive in large enterprise. But now, especially with public services, pretty much everything has an API. The perimeter doesn't exist the way it used to. And so you can query everything. So that left the problem of, can you make sense of things? And that's of course, what we're, <laughs> what we're here about, right? Is vectors, the, the power of vector search and vector similarity, specifically, right, soft cosine vector similarity that we use in Swirl to make sense of completely disparate and very, very, very incompatible results, if you will. And it's shocking how well it works. That yeah. that's when I saw it work, I said there's more to this than I thought. And now it seems I'm not the only one. So but anyway, that that's a little bit of the story in my background. I hope that uh, that made some sense. Yeah, it's very solid background. You reminded me of one uh I don't remember the name of that computer, but it like didn't have the display the way we have today, right? It just had the keyboard and then the, it had the cassette. And so my friend and I were sitting there for several minutes to boot it. And then there was some game like Mario or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that was on the, the cool Apple IIs. I was always envious of the Apple II, you know, kids. Um, because you're right, in the TRS-80, we only had block graphics. It was It was hilarious, but it did move a little bit um faster in a way like you had to wait a long time for apple upgrades but i remember the trs80 there was an incredible ecosystem of things you could add to it so memory and then there was a company called percom that put out disk drives wow a disk drive that was a game changer if you played with a cassette cassette recorder 
Although who didn't love switching your parents' cassettes with the with a data tape so they'd put it on in the car and we go, <laughs> and they'd be like, stop and turn that off. It was it was a hilarious prank, a great way to get some sound. But um, uh, disc drives then gave right first there were the five and a quarter or actually eight inch, then five and a quarter, and then finally they got to the cassette drives. At that point, it was sort of replaced, right? Then the 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 IBM PC showed up and. That was a bit of a game changer, but the Apple always had better better graphics. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I just wanted to come back to uh, what you just said about federated search and enterprise search. I think I remember hearing about enterprise search, was it like 15, 16, 17 years ago? I don't remember. In the university, when one of my supervisors was focusing on it and he was saying, this is the be- next big thing. And once it's figured out, you know, we will be rich. Uh, but somehow... It didn't happen, and uh, and then later in my career, I heard the term federated search um, in connection to, okay, we have our own search engine, we have clients' data, can we combine the two without needing them to upload their data to our servers? Because in some cases, they wouldn't trust us, you know, securing it enough and so on and so forth. And then we were confronted with the fact that maybe it will incur quite a bit of latency and also even in the first place how we would build this but you know like before we even get there how Mm. do you relate enterprise search versus federated search so so i think they're they're different in that enterprise search is about a realm right enterprise search means usually not public sources and i think it's important to differentiate the problems of the large enterprise and the, even the medium enterprise are not the same as the sort of small small and medium enter, en, enterprise. Maybe that's not a great dividing line, but definitely the large enterprise has a very different set of problems. It's so much more about you know global distribution and languages and regulation. If you're a you know small company like like Swirl Inc., we have five people. We can work off of almost anything. I mean, um, and we don't have the silo problem because we just have picked you know we have four <laughs> but it's interesting we do still have the silo problem right and as i'm going to show you just when we were trying to find the the steering document for this discussion i realized i was hunting around which silo did i put it in instead of just going to search so it's funny that we've, we've trained ourselves to work that way that i think it's it's a reflection of of the reality that in the large enterprise it's exactly what you said entitlements are extremely important um, you're talking about crown jewel data, like PL product data uh, or customer feedback. CRM data is much less sensitive in some ways. Also, data that you might purchase. Uh, it's very common for companies to build and or purchase data sets and assemble them or assemble derivative sets. These would be incredibly valuable for lots of uses. The, the simplest one, right, usually is sales or the most obvious one is help sales, help partners sell more at the knowledge companies help the salespeople better understand their customers or industries. And there's a massive amount of information overload. So the problems are different. They're acute. They're willing to spend significant money, right? And invest in really creating a better world. I think now, um, maybe one of the most important trends is people are not so interested in more search boxes. They want to build proactive systems that bring people the information that they need. And this has been a long, long time thing in sales with things like LinkedIn Navigator, right? A lot of the public data gets harvested and brought to you, but think about all of that incredibly rich, valuable internal data and needing to bring that 
and how hard it is to bring that to, to people inside the enterprise because of those entitlement lines. So federated or meta search is a technical approach which says rather than in, in traditional enterprise search, traditionally the tool is indexing. So you take the, you take the data from all the sources that you need to query, which usually, since that's hundreds, if not thousands inside the large enterprise, usually you start with a few and you extract the data, meaning you pull it all out. Then you have to remodel it because you could leave it sort of as is, but the odds are high that won't help with search. You need to make at least some of the fields, things like title and body line up. So you map those things over and you have to make sure that the set of entitlements meaning who's authorized to do stuff, all of that from all the silos has to be aggregated and correctly rationalized and put together. Then you index it. Indexing is a technical process like the creating a you know structure like the back of most books or most long books, a list of words with basically page numbers, but in this case, they're slightly more complex. They might identify the document and the field and the exact token that it occurs in. So you have this, this kind of data structure. And... You just have to keep it up to date anytime anything changes. So it's really hard. I have been very lucky to work in search and fast was a phenomenal indexing company and it, it innovated in indexing beyond the pale, really incredible stuff. So fast was one of the first companies to do updatable indices. You could actually update it. Um, then a lot of the stuff that they did is advanced vector. We did it fast, but you know, me a tiny bit, right? Whatever the nuggets were, but they went on, they went so far with engine development at Fast. And now it's, by the way, available at, through the Vespa project, right? If you go to Vespa.ai, all that stuff is available open source too. Um, yeah, I, we have an episode with Vespa. And probably with Joe. Or, yes. <laughs> he's my he's my, my hero on, on, on Twitter. So incredible advances at Fast. And frankly, at Atavio, you know, there, there were a bunch of patents filed. Some very smart people worked on that problem and came up with incredible ways to interlink data by combining graph and, and a traditional inverted index and doing things like then adding that to machine learning and doing things like predicting the answer to a, a service ticket. So there's no end of indexing. It's just hard. That's all. It's just hard. And especially when you want to combine silos. And so over the years, I've bumped into people who have had the multi-silo problem in great numbers. There is one consulting company that has more than 500 silos, separate installations of Elastic, literally from version two to version eight or whatever they're on now, right? Because that was a standard. And when they got a JSON data set or a database or they bought something or they did a hackathon, invariably the documents ended up in some Elastic with some security on it. And now the some of the variation, right, in partner and, and uh, case team performance is attributed internally through surveys to who knows where to get the data. If you know, oh, I know to need to talk to this person, they will have the key to unlock this particular thing that I can then use, right, to say, hey, look what we, this incredible work we did in your industry before, or look at this incredible work we did for you in the past, right? A new partner might not know that, that they've done five engagements that were very similar, right? So it's that kind of, and I think the word is systematic. People want to be very much more systematic now because everybody's too busy and there's information overload. So that's really the, to, to break those lines down. My view is enterprise search now really desperately, 
desperately critically requires meta search. It's the only choice you cannot you're downloading and uh, you know pulling out all of the data. Even if you were to desire that, it's very hard to do. Now you because you have to basically the old way would be to pull all the data out of everything and sort of filter it down. Why not search it? Yeah. The power of meta search is to say it's out there now. The vendors are doing incredible things. I mean, ServiceNow, from where it you know was years ago to where it is today, it's incredible. There's an amazing team of people working away on that. And that's true of most applications now. Somebody's working on search. It has a nice, high-quality API. So let them do their thing. Let them master it. But search. And the, the other thing, the interesting thing that makes MetaSearch particularly powerful for the enterprise is you're always searching on behalf of something, right? And that avoids. It's not that it avoids it. It goes with the flow. It goes with the grain of the enterprise architecture. You're supposed to query on behalf of something. And if you do, in theory, the app can just maintain the context. It only gets tricky when you start saying, oh, I want to combine these five together but at the data level. When you do it at the user level, that's fine. Either the user was authorized to see all three or they weren't, or they were able to see a portion of it or they weren't. That's the way things work in the enterprise. So that's uh, that's the subtle difference, right? To, to delineate them. Yeah. And yeah. why I think the potentials there is that indexing is costly. Yeah. And yet, commodity. Yeah, and you, you described it really eloquently in a way that to some extent, by implementing MetaSearch, you wouldn't need to solve indexing issues. You wouldn't need to solve um, entitlement issues, right? You kind of like use the existing proxies. But there is one remaining bit that I'm really curious about. Um, so if you, if you look at, um, let's say, what Google did, um, to the web search is that they looked at what you could call a folksonomy effect. So other people created pages linked to more important pages, hubs, and then you invent the algorithm, credit to you, uh, but you still kind of like rely on what others did in a way, right? And so Absolutely. now you have the page rank algorithm, how you how you rank the documents. And all of a sudden, this is the breakthrough and this looks a lot more relevant. In enterprise search, you don't necessarily have this. Okay, you do have documents that are being curated, created, and so forth. But then, as you said, there is a lot of silos, right? And so things get created. There is no single place where you can say, what happened? What did I miss? You know, what's What do you have on this topic? And so forth. Uh, just today in the morning, I was browsing through... Office 365, they have like a single page which shows me all the documents that either I interacted with or yeah. someone interacted with and I'm part of that group. And I can search there. That was helpful, actually. That, that, that solved a lot of, saved a lot of time. But again, it doesn't have confluence. It doesn't have uh, Salesforce. It doesn't have a bunch of other you know places where I would go. Um, so I guess one missing component still in enterprise search was um, how would you rank these documents, right? Because you don't have a lot of signals. You simply have the documents themselves. And, and so would you say that vector search now opens up this horizon for us? You know, it it's helps solve this problem. Absolutely. It, and I think if we, if we untangle it a little bit, it gets back to Google. In fact, it goes right back to Google. Google had the challenge of making, they had the biggest data set 
in history, the web, incredibly interlinked. And they did the absolute best job of figuring out how to model that structure. But they didn't, you weren't searching every web page every time you searched, you were searching a structure that in fact is a large language model, <laughs> right? That's what they built. They were the one, they pioneered it. Bert was the very first one. Or no, that's probably not true at all. Bert was an early one that got popular. I, I don't want to make, I have no idea, right, where, what came first. But Bert was certainly the one that was the game changer. It was very recognized. That's where the real popularization of transformer models, I think, came, came from. And it's that structure. What is that structure? It's a structure that can evaluate results almost independent of the results themselves. You don't have to look at every web page. And so that's the key. In fact, you're absolutely right. I think, and there have been many attempts to do meta search and federated search, even against APIs, but you then end up with just all the results, tiled or whatever it is, but it's just all the results. And that doesn't help with information overload. It also doesn't really get to the potential. So the key is, and what Swirl uses, we use a large language model. It's, it's, there's more to it, right? There's a relevancy algorithm around it. There's a similarity pipeline around it, right? There's, but at the end of the day, there's a large model that evaluates data as vectors with real numbers. And it allows you to do incredible comparisons. And the thing that, as I put this together, so I wrote it nights and weekends uh, starting last year. And when I started to get results from it, I was shocked because I did not expect it to go to be as good as it came out. The thing about relevancy, right, is, oh man, man we can always say we can, we'll identify it when we see it, but building tests around it is very difficult. Uh, you come out with gold standards and I love all the tooling. There's so much good tooling around it, but at the end of the day, it all depends fundamentally on really some set of finite labeled outcomes, right? That, that's what it is. I found another way to measure the relevancy without doing that. And the, the way to do that is how far to the right are the term hits? And in when you using Swirl, it favors, because of the large language model, the model we used, it favors hits that are to the left, beginning of the sentence. It views aboutness as being at the beginning of the sentence. It's extremely good at discriminating again, you know, identifying hits that are in passing. So right, I think we can all agree relevance. I've always viewed relevancy as a bit of a stepped function. The absolute top is exactly what I searched for in the entire field of the title and the body, right? At the, and the, same, the hits at the beginning of the body. We can probably agree that's gotta be a good hit to the degree there's a title and a body. And then we all fear the, the terrible mention, right? The enemy of relevancy is one mention of New York at the very end, right? It's like they're in the list of cities that absolutely have nothing to do with the Big Apple. And that's what I found, is that the relevancy function, the lower you are in the result list, the more to the right your search terms are. And the relevancy is what, the other thing about meta search is since you don't have the documents, I believe that an evidence-based approach is critical. Did the silo return the search terms that you, the user put in, do, are they visible in the results? If they're not visible, then there's a question. So that's the other piece of it is we do use an evidence-based metric combined with similarity to say, to, to rank and it works. And now, so that said, here's all the stuff that I just left out. 
You have to normalize the query, especially if you interpret the query and rewrite it. One of the most important things about Metasearch is you can't send the same query to every endpoint. Not all endpoints are equal. Some endpoints, for example, might be a database that's really able to target one field at a time effectively. So for example, they might be a repository that knows about companies. So if your search is electric vehicle Tesla, don't send electric vehicle in, just send Tesla. So we provide a way to mark that. Squirrel has the ability to tag each search provider with what it knows about. So you would write that electric vehicle company colon Tesla. Tesla goes just to the company silos, the query. Everybody else drops the tag. So Google gets electric vehicle Tesla, which of course it does a magnificent job on. So then you have to normalize the query when you're scoring, as well as you have to normalize each field, right, as normal. Freshness is certainly an interesting thing. I found the model also works best if we add um, a boost based on the top topness of the results. So if a repository gave it rank number one, we should probably at least factor that in a little bit. And then, of course, there's things like number of hits. And vector similarity is ultimately used, right? We aggregate vector similarities to reflect the evidence level. And then the strength of it, right, is captured in the similarity. So a lot went into it. It's probably the most awful module in uh, in our in our repo, but uh, somebody smarter will, re will rewrite it soon. But it works. And uh, that's the important thing. And that is why I'm here today, right? I have exited other ventures because I believe in this so much. And uh, I put together a little company that is here to support it. It's 100% open source under Apache 2.0. Get it or grab the Docker and you can make it run in two lines. And uh, you'll, you'll see. Yeah, this sounds so fantastic. And I, I'm sure our listeners will, will take a look, especially because it's open source. It's much easier to, uh, you know, start hacking over the weekend or something. Um, I also wanted to ask you before you you show show us some demos. I think this will be really really interesting and changing format of the podcast to some extent. Um, you mentioned uh, the similarity aspect of vector search, right? And so probably it also exists in keyword search to some extent. But there, as you said, we trained ourselves to look at what we see, and if we see our keywords. We kind of trust this more, although this probably varies per case. But in similarity search and vector search, this similarity is at play, right? So like if you cannot find a top result or even like a middle relevant result, you only find like very distant ones. How you do, how do you detect this and how do you deal with this? So the similarity will be poor and there'll be no evidence. So the score will be low and it will end up dropped to the back of the result list. That's the key. Now, there are a bunch of reasons that can happen though. One of those reasons could be that perhaps we do not understand the domain as well as the silo does. And one thing, one example of that is perhaps we're dealing with transformations of entities, very often dictionary based, or sometimes it's more subtle, but it, one of the things we learned very quickly is QWERTY is an open, an amazing open source package that's used with Elastic Solar, an open source, uh, open search, I should say, and it rewrites queries. It's kind of the standard for it. It's very common to find it. It's really amazing. So here, the idea is that the silo knows something that we don't. So we actually have an integration now where we listen to the feedback that comes from each engine. So if they report, for example, if they highlight hits, we check the similarity. If the similarity is high enough, then we'll honor that. 
And that's another idea, right? Where um, we want each of those silos to, we want to honor their feedback. Now we're not today, right? But in the future, why not requery, right? Based on expanding our vocabulary around a search. Th those are all things that can be done. And by the way, we'd love to get a pull request if someone wants to do that. So um, that honestly is, that's kind of the key to the whole thing. Yeah. So you kind of like learn to innovate in a way, like you have multiple voter problem, but you also want to really, you know, hear the signal, hear out the signal from every of the voter and sort of like make sure that you roll this up to the best formula, right? The best representation of this signal to the user. That's right. Absolutely. And then you can label some of those cells because you're right. Some of them are getting really smart. Uh, just some examples, right? I'm throw out, I'll throw out some Vectara. Amazing, amazing, incredible vector database. That's probably an inadequate description, um, but it answers questions on your documents. There are There's a revolution in, in vector um, in vector search. Some people are focused very much on, on performance, right? Some people are focused on, on knowledge. Some people are focused on exporting vectors. So I think the enterprise, especially the large enterprise, already has dozens of indexing tools and engines and others. And there will be many of these too, special cased, right? There'll be some that are incredible at customer service and some will be incredible at you know, exception handling, some that will be incredible at perhaps sales pre-qualification. You know, I just sort of learned from the, the past examples, Watson was going to diagnose everything, right? And I think what it ultimately did well was pre-approval authorizations. So, but over time, I think it's clear these will all become more automated. And so then, but you still need a way, if you're trying to figure out what's new across these silos, you still need a way to query them all. And so Swirl's happy. We have an integration with ChatGPT. You can query ChatGPT. In fact, by default, we query it if you put your key in every time. So you, and we rewrite the query. If the query is a question, we just pass it right along. If it's not, we ask, rewrite it using a prompt to something like, tell me about thing. So you get a summary, right, which we pop up for everything. We also have a query processor. So you can have ChatGPT change the user's query, like you could say, rewrite this to a Boolean or rewrite this, why not to a vector? But in the end, right, it's going to do that on its own on the back side of things. So um, when you're trying to solve problems in the enterprise, the key is you need an interface to write to. And it would be nice not to have to write code to connect to all these things, getting back to your question about architecture. And so those are the key abstractions in Swirl. Swirl, you don't have to write code to connect to an endpoint that we already have a connector to. You just write a search provider. All you need to know is JSON path and maybe be able to read a little developer API doc, right? And then that, that you'll pretty much be able to get the search provider. If you need to write a connector, and of course, here's the, here's the punchline, well, I think it would probably take you a couple hours, depending on your skill at Python. But on average, it shouldn't take more than two hours because you, I can give you a prompt and we can teach ChatGPT about the connector class. You should be able to get that done in a couple hours just fixing up what it does. I've found that about 70% of the time, it will produce a workable connector just by asking the right prompt, right? Teach it, how, teach it our connector class and give it the right prompt and bang, you have sort of almost working code. Yeah, I think this is the best part of um, interfaces like ChatGPT, systems like ChatGPT, is that you can outsource this mundane work and really focus on the actual thing. I, I was actually blown away myself and to some extent scared 
few weeks ago when I was just saying, hey, can you create a Python code which will talk to um, TomTom uh, search API, map search API? And it did, it created, it just asked me to insert like a, um, you know, a token. So I just subscribe developer token. But I was really blown away. Like I would have spent probably like several half a days here and there figuring things out, right? If it wasn't TomTom or some other API. Uh, but yeah, I think this is amazing. And I think, well, I, I believe that you guys are documenting a lot, but if you if you haven't yet, what you just explained, put in documents, I think that could save a lot of time for developers. But I was wondering, maybe um, you would like to show us a demo of Swirl and then we'll uh, dig deeper into that. Absolutely. So uh, let me share my screen. So hopefully you can see my screen. Yes. So this is Swirl. Uh, actually, I'll I'll start here. Uh, this is the Swirl repo. Everything you need to get started is here. Um, the README describes, you know, pretty much the two commands you need to run to get Swirl running if you have Docker. There are more detailed instructions if you want to download. Um, everything that you'll see here runs, um, we, we have uh, automated tests against everything. We have a whole uh, CICD environment and support. I just want to be clear is free. Please just join our Slack channel and we're happy to help uh, anytime, anywhere. Uh, now, when you get Swirl installed locally, as I have it, you'll get this nice homepage. Um, but ultimately, what most people want to see is the UI. So this is Spyglass. It's an open source UI produced by sister company KMW, uh, actually long, long time friend, Kevin Waters, uh, and he's a long time committer and uh, a contributor to, to the open source community as well. So Spyglass is a great starting point for building user interfaces. It has a lot of the key building blocks. Um, and so here, yesterday I was thinking about how I uh, was, we wrote a document, you, were, you sent me a document to use, and I, I admit, Today, I was sitting here going, where is that document, right? And I actually said, okay, it's in Microsoft Outlook, and I found it. But I forgot that I could search because one of the great things about it that's coming out in Swirl version 2, which is going to drop next month in May, um, is we have full M365 support. So you can do the OAuth 2 dance, um, and I've actually searched through my M365, and here's my acceptance of your, your meeting, actually, uh, some other references to it, and then here... Document number four, document shared with you, Vector Podcast. So if I had searched, it would have been the fourth hit above the fold. And I actually haven't done the relevancy tuning on email or OneDrive yet. <laughs> so it worked well <laughs> enough to come up. But what I think you can see, again, is the matches are early in the document. It favors them. First of all, of course, it likes both terms together, but it it favors them with without... With some exceptions, it favors the term that's to the left. And so you can see there were a lot of results, but only a few really ranked yeah. highly. And that's the key, right? I scan it. I'm pretty much done now. And I can say, you know, I probably want to go look in my email or my OneDrive. That's more than likely where it is. And I can go and do that, you know, very simply. Right. There we go. Now I have in the top three. So the power of MetaSearch, though, is more than just that uh i will uh let's just let's do that is it like a django app or 
what I yes did. yeah yeah so the stack we is the stack is uh <clears throat> rabbit django python celery uh, although we're not using too much celery and sqlite or postgres underneath with a lot of packages we use nltk spacey yeah um json path some others okay So now, so here I am running my electric vehicle company colon Tesla. Um, this is an earlier version of the software. So you're going to see some, uh, there's one bug here, which is you'll see the emphasis tags instead of having them render uh, just because I reloaded the older version. Um, but here we can see a lot more sources than just, uh, just uh, you know, enterprise sources. And in particular, one of the things that the Swirl Adaptive Query Processor does is it rewrites this query most repositories will get the search uh, electric vehicle Tesla with the company tag removed. However, the uh, company funding database in BigQuery, which I just fixed, uh, will actually only get the query Tesla. So if we now look at the results, you know, we'll see fairly traditional high quality content here about electric vehicles with Tesla favored early on. Um, so for example, it loves this hit with Tesla right at the beginning of the body. Uh, most of these, I think, are pretty good hits. And here, here's a database hit. This is from BigQuery. It's a company funding record. So Tesla Motors raised a large Series C back in 2006. This is an old data, uh, database of funding records from Kaggle. Now, a couple of things I want to point out. On the fly, Swirl allows you to turn a database record into a sort of pseudo document. You can actually just write this as a, a Python expression uh, and use braces to refer to the, the fields. And I'll, I'll show that in a second. In addition, though, Swirl has a fixed schema, URL, title, body, date published, date retrieved, and author. But it also has a payload field. The payload field can hold anything. And by default, anything that you don't specify for mapping goes into the payload. You can also say, please don't put anything in the payload. So here, the fields are also repeated right, as data items, so that if I wanted, I could extract those individually. And the idea here is you have a normalized record that reflects the sort of top relevancy items, so you know whether or not you should go deeper. And then the payload will have anything extra that you might need to make that decision. Um, so for example, if we look a little further down, here's a result from nlresearch.com, Northern Light, the same company I started while working on search, or I learned a lot about search uh, at, was really the first company I worked for, still going strong. One of the things they do is extract super high quality news from the web and they field it and they classify it and can really do rich searching. So here is an article that they pulled together about, you know, basically it's not so much about the electric vehicle market. So it's about Tesla. So it ranked a little bit lower. In this case, there were some other ones that ranked higher. They have some nice data that we like to capture and put in the payload as well. So this really is the core of Swirl and you say it has things like facets. For example, we use U-Track internally to uh, to track issues. So, if I want to, you know, just switch to those, it'll bring just those up. Oh, looks like I goofed on that one. Uh, another thing you can do when you're running. Oops, looks like a just one second. Another thing you can do, we have the concept of mixers. 
not for drinks, but for results. Uh, you can mix the results up. By default, we, we do it by relevancy, but you can specify different mixers. For example, the date mixer will 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 focus on will date sort it, and it hides anything that doesn't have a date published. The round robin mixer, on the other hand, still sort of honors relevancy, but it just takes one from each result. So you get a cross section of the results. So here, for example, you know, just looking at the top five, one result, the best result from each silo right here at the top. And of course, here I'm arguing a little bit about the relevancy of this right in one of our support tickets. So you see everything kind of just brought together for me and I can decide which things I might like to do. Yeah, maybe it could. I mean, I'm just commenting as we go, but like maybe visually it could also show where this comes from, right? Because you do have on the left the sources. Yes. And so I could actually say this comes from here, this comes from there. But again, the combined view is also excellent. It's just if you needed to know, right? If you okay. need to know where did I get this from, right? That's right. So we do, we do, we keep the source in the result here, along with whoever the source tells us the author is. However, in the in this version, we didn't get to it. We like to report the original rank. So you should see IT News NL Research 1 here. It's the number one result. Um, in the 2.0 version, actually, there's a new version that's coming out. I think we're going to just do a bug fix on this. Um, the latest version 10.1, which is in the repo now, fixes that and a couple other issues. So if you just get the newest, you'll be good. Um, in 2.0, though, we have a little bit of a new treatment for this. I think you'll like a lot better. But before I jump to that, so you asked me a really important question, right? So how this is great. This UI will evolve. It's here so that you can show the power, right? And we ship it integrated. But from a developer perspective, none of this is super helpful, right? How do I integrate this with an existing UI? So that's what I really wanted to show you next. So first, how do we connect to something? The answer is a search provider definition. So this definition right here, this text record, mostly JSON, but mostly just strings. This configures our out-of-the-box request get connector to query a search provider, to query in particular, this Google uh, programmable search engine that I put together. And actually we ship with three of them preset and please feel free to share our keys. Um, we, we're, we're happy, we wanna make sure that uh, uh, something is working for everybody, right, out-of-the-box. So further in this, are the things you'd expect. You can configure this with by providing a URL. You can construct the URL by pulling in fields from the query mappings. So the only thing that ever really changes in a Google PSE is the CX code. Everything else you can just copy and paste. You can put dozens of them in. Also here are some of the important system things that you know help the system work, help us process this. So we have four different uh, processing pipelines built into Swirl. One is a pre-query that runs before federation. And then there's a uh, query processing pipeline that runs for each connector, or I should actually say search provider, which is an instance, a configured instance of a connector. Then each of those also has a result processing pipeline, which transforms the results from the source into our normalized format. And then there's a post result processing that does things like relevancy ranking, where you want all of the data. And they're all different, by the way, there's an object model behind Swirl, so rating these things is really simple. Um, there are different base classes for those, and they set you up with everything you need. So essentially, you come in, you have a, a, a Python model, or I should say a Django model object to operate on. All you have to do is change it and exit, and you're done. Simple, simple. Um, 
Also, we map out the different query uh, capabilities of each provider in the query mapping. So how do you tell a given endpoint to sort by date? This is how. You add this to the URL. How do you page through results? This is how. Um, result index is a, a swirl capability where we can provide you with the index number. You can also use result page, right? So the, the count or the page that you want. And here's an important one too, the not character. So do, does the silo support not as a term? This one doesn't. It does not support not as a term, um, but it supports the not character. So as an example, now if I go to the search object, I can run a search. I'll run it for knowledge management. So actually, I'll, I'm going to just let that one run for a second. Oops. There we go. Oh, I got my chat. G, my, I have the wrong chat GPT API key, but that's okay. Everybody knows what it would say about this stuff. So actually the query I really want to do is Elon Musk, not Twitter. So perfectly legitimate query, right? What, what's going on in Elon Musk's world that's not related to Twitter? Now here's the thing. Google PSE will not understand that query. And everybody says, what? Google doesn't understand not? No, web Google does, but Google programmable search engine does not honor a not. And in fact, just to prove it, psc.google.com. By the way, before I talked to you, I didn't know of this uh, system existence myself, PSE. <laughs> oh my gosh. For web slicing up the web, it is incredible. I mean, it takes two seconds to build it, right? So, uh, and you just give it examples. So here's the thing, you can go, here's the public URL for one of the programmable search engines I put in and I'll do the same exact query. Elon Musk. Okay, so the very first result has Twitter in it, right? It's, it's right there. In fact, the second result also has Twitter. Google programmable search engine is not going through the full Google parser and it does not honor the not. However, if I say this, it works perfectly. The plus minus syntax works. Okay, so now when we look at this definition, it says the not character for Google PSE is minus. So now if we look at the search I ran, let's look at the search object. It's another object inside a swirl. Why is there a search object? Because in MetaSearch, it takes a few seconds to get the results from everything. And you may want to look at that data over and over again. In fact, one of the cool things you can do with Swirl is you can set the subscribe function. Swirl will then recheck for new results every so often and update and mark them new, and you can even get an update, things like that, right? So, so alert mode, if you will, or subscribe mode, as we like to call it. So let's take a look at the search object. What this object contains, for starters, a block of messages that explain exactly what was done to the query. And here you can see the adaptive query processor rewrote the queries for Google PSE from Elon Musk not Twitter to Elon Musk minus Twitter. So this way we guarantee you're gonna get the right result, not a bad result. Oh, and also our relevancy model checks. If you have a knotted term in your query and it finds it in relevancy, we drop it to the bottom and say, uh, we actually put a special flag on it. So we say, this was a bad result. Um, most of the others though, frankly, just either didn't know, they don't handle not, Utrecht doesn't handle a not, at all. So we removed it completely and just say, go give us what you've got for that. And for others, we probably would have left them. Looking at the results, there's also an info block. This is all JSON. Right? So it's straightforward for developer to use in Python. It's you know, lists and dictionaries. Um, there's a result that describes what each of the different sources gave back. Easy to parse if you want to build that. Um, you have a filter URL. 
So you can construct your own facet display and to jump to any given provider. We actually give you the query that we ran. So if you want to check the results, assuming you have the right credentials, there's the results, right? So I can actually go look at and modify my JSON. And then as you would expect, there's a summary of what was found. So here's what we actually searched. Uh, the overall query, we have, if you want to rerun or, or update a query or rescore it, you can do that right from the result list. So those links are available. We summarize the Federation results and the time, give you the next page of results, everything's stored in Swirl, so you can page through. By the way, you can also set a retention uh, or ex expiration factor if you want, so results will simply disappear. For secure applications, you can even do it so there's no storage at all. And then the results. So from a developer perspective, literally I'm going to extract the results dictionary, or I'm sorry, the results list from this structure that I get back when I call it. And I'm going to iterate on that. And each thing's a dictionary. It's a flat dictionary with as the things you would expect pretty much, right? Title, URL, body, date published, date retrieved, and author. Everything else is meta information. So what, what search provider responded, what the rank was. Our score is a score. There's various techniques to turn that into a probability or a confidence level, if you would like. Uh, we may do that in the future. I think it's, a, you know, if, if people wanted it, we'd love to hear about it. Um, I think for now, though, people seem to be very happy just with rank. Most importantly, and really, this is what Swirl's ultimate value is, we explain exactly why the result matched and why it scored as it did. So, for example, we in this case, of course, there are no stems for a name, but we do basically we use NLTK, we stem to maximize recall. Then you'll see the actual um, extracted hits, the actual hit, not the lowercase tokenized version, right? So we extract the actual hit, and then we produce the score, which is this is the co cosine similarity between this, the query and the text around it in the result. So we kind of sentence tokenize the result that we get, and then we're basically looking, trying to stay within that sentence and see how relevant it is. And ultimately, we also adjust since we are sending different queries to different uh, systems. And of course, different systems have different result lengths on average. We do adjustments for both of those. We also give you the exact token locations for everything that's hit and uh, ready to rank from there. Wow. So much is done behind the scenes here, you know, and so much is simplified, you know, on the on the other side, on the outer side. That's amazing. And how many systems do you support or which systems do you support out of the box today? So I'm happy to say we have connectors to all of the major open source search engines, including Solar, AWS OpenSearch or OpenSearch.org, I should say, um, and Elasticsearch. We also support the main open databases, Postgres, uh, SQLite, um, also some of the more traditional cloud ones, Google BigQuery, for example. Um, and we are in the process of adding, as I mentioned, M365. We also have, uh, as of the last one, you can connect to Atlassian using our uh, request get. You can connect to Utrack. So many of the sophisticated repositories, you can actually just use the request get connector to, to, to talk to them. And uh, M365 and Slack are coming in our next release, which is next month. Wow, I think especially Slack or any like messenger that also has, you know, this kind of APIs that you can utilize. I think that's going to be like a big thing, in my opinion, because so much is happening in Slack or similar platforms. You know, so much knowledge is kind of written there in public channels or your, in your own direct messages, right? If, if it's possible to access them, then I think this, this is amazing. 
We even support Microsoft Teams in the next release, uh, full search of messages, also all the shared objects, you know, depending on configuration. And if, if you're familiar with the you know, M365 uh, OpenID Connect, you know, the infrastructure and, and, and sort of the, that, that ecosystem, it's entirely under the, the deployer's control. Swirl is just software. I mean, we have a uh, you know, hosted platform which you get connected to, but the permissioning, all of that is actually done on the, on the owner's side. And uh, you, know, you can turn it off in one second if for any reason you're uncomfortable. Um, but Swirl 2.0, again, we'll be coming out next month, has all of the OAuth and OIDC capabilities so that you know, you're really just connecting your Microsoft account, searching through that stuff, and there's no other user interfaces or IDs or anything like that. It's all, uh, all seamless and, and uh, again, all, all completely uh, uh, controlled by the, the deploying side, the M365 tenant owner. Yeah, fantastic. Is there something else you want to show on this demo? Or we want to go back to our audio mode, video and audio for those who are yep. listening only. All right. I hope that Fantastic. was more than enough. You know, there's there's tons of show. I just wanted to give a little flavor for it. And, and in particular, you know, we're really focused on making this easy for developers. That That's the, the current audience. I think there's lots more we can do in the future, but if you want to add a bunch of sources or solve a multi-silo search problem, that's what Swirl's intended to do. That's it. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, and how do you see the clientele like what is the ideal client for for this system how do you want to interact with these clients um and how do you see or maybe you already experienced this you know first steps to succeeding on this path so i honestly people who are using it today are doing three things with it and, and i'm super curious right as to which one which ones of these will evolve I think the most basic, you know, or interesting use case, right, or the sort of like the most obvious use case is one search box to rule them all, pardon the Lord of the Rings reference. But honestly, that's been so hard. If you've done a lot of enterprise search projects, normally, you know, for the initial scope, and it's expensive, and it takes about a year or whatever, you know, you get a couple silos in place, and things are good, and people like it. But adding silos over time is super costly, and it's hard, and this is the way to do it. You have a great existing search index. You have a search UI. Awesome. Connect the search index to Swirl and connect your UI to Swirl. Now you can add a whole bunch of other sources and get great ranking. And you don't have to change the UI necessarily. For the most part, every search UI has URL, title, and body, and maybe a date. Okay, so if for starters, you can just take those. And if you have more, right, if you want to do a source facet, that's cool. From there, I think... You know, people with Python, right, Django um, experience and who want to take this and tailor it, we'd love to help. We'd love to hear what you're doing. Again, please, the Slack support's all free. Just join up the community and, and get in there and tell us what, what's going on or, uh, or ask. Uh, and I think there's lots of other people who are working with it, too, who have started to, you know, answer questions and things like that. The second thing, though, there are definitely use cases where people really want to monitor multiple sources and push notifications out like to Slack and to Teams and things like that. That's a very different model. I don't know if that's for everybody, but I think it's, in a way, that's the future, right? We shouldn't have to ask when going to a search box takes time and then I still have to parse it. Depending on what you know, Swirl doesn't do any profiling or anything like that. Depending on what you know, you the builder of search apps, right? Or insight apps, you should be able to target them. but. The barrier is usually not what we know about the user, right? Since they're an employee, we might have 
skill knowledge about them, right? We probably have access in theory to some other information about their, their job function and department and who they talk to. So it shouldn't be that hard, but the problem isn't knowing that stuff. The problem is saying, okay, well, how do I get content, right? How do I get that out? So again, hook it up to Swirl, um, build a watch list, which can be essentially a group of queries or a set of search objects with the subscribe function turned on, you know, for a bunch of topics, push that data out to the people who need to know, create groups, use service accounts to search as opposed to using individual users, right? Targeting individual users, not super valuable for proactive delivery, but on a group basis, very valuable. So tell, right, create an industry feed that, you know, if you really know where to get the best industry data, why not make that systematic? Why not make that um, that data available to everybody who's out there trying to talk to those folks through whatever, through their mobile? And this is the thing, right? Trying to do end-to-end -end enterprise search is super hard. You got to get people to adopt your solution. Why would what, what do you want my mobile app for? You probably already have a cool one. You might already have five. So it's all about just putting that data out there so people can keep building fast. That that's it. Yeah, this this is amazing. I mean, you you simplify it a lot in how you present it. You simplify it a lot and, and you solved so many edge case, like not edge case, but like this really challenging things that are like showstoppers sometimes, you know, like, okay, I have this existing search demo app or something, you know, it's used within my, my uh, department. I just want to add one data source now what do i do right uh, do i really need to change my ui do i really need to rewrite the backend and things like that and so architecturally when i introduce swirl will it actually precede every search backend call between ui and and the search backend that's how i do it now again like we're setting it up we use it internally and that's the way to do it rather than querying an index, you know, and then query, just query swirl and have it query all of those things. And what you get is the best results from across all sources. Now that's no substitute though, right? From going into the silo, sometimes you need to go into the silo. They have, in addition to a great search API and a lot of business logic, right? On their side, like query synonyms, there's a lot more. You probably want to view the object in their environment versus in Swirl, I mean, we can create a copy of it or whatever, like everybody else does. We don't. If somebody wants to do preview, you know, there are so many technologies to do that, but why? Instead, take. I think the best thing to do is after the user has scanned the shallow results that Swirl gives you immediately, two, two three seconds, that's nothing compared to the time it takes to go to each silo. After you've done three silos, you're already way saving, right? But then say, okay, look, it's obvious to me that the best results here are maybe in OneDrive in this folder, or maybe it's in this Teams chat or these Teams chats. So now click, go into that environment and hopefully you can then right, traverse the data and get what you actually need. And down the road, when those repositories are serving up answers, right? We, we haven't mentioned ChatGPT much, but I assume you've seen the Microsoft Copilot demo. How long before that's pushing the data back as opposed to you asking for it, right? It's saying, oh, here's the summary you need today. If you knew what to tell it, it could probably do that for you. So I think that's the new landscape. The much more important thing than the one search box to rule them all is to use the power of MetaSearch to connect systems together and deliver information to the stuff you have already, to the workflows that work and make value already. Um, whether that's Slack or you know uh, a newsletter, or a notification to a Salesforce queue, that's the what you should do, not 
the world doesn't need another search UI. Yeah, especially think. like like today, um, I I saw a message on Slack from one of the senior managers saying, "Hey, uh, what's the password to this thing?" And um, and I can imagine that in their busy busy schedules, you know, if they don't have access, they they don't have the password right now, they will switch to another topic. But but maybe this topic was still important and maybe even more important, but they just don't want to wait, and. What you say is that, in principle, they could have configured it once and access it as many times as they need. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In, in, it's not uncommon in the world of you know, consulting, strategic consulting, tech strategy, that the most powerful people are analysts and admins because you know, partners are very busy right? Talking to and solving client problems and finding new ones. So they rely on those folks to have access to all the systems and to go scour them. And of course, that's that's a waste, right? It, probably nobody loves scouring those silos, but even more, we, we cannot be 100% systematic all the time. But with technologies like MetaSearch and push technologies, and there's a million things you could use, and there's a million ways to deliver those things, the opportunity is really there to let let those people work on something else, right? To create value in other ways and not just be scouring it um, for everything that's relevant for every, you know, give the best chance. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you uh, view um, the problem of, or do you think it's a problem at all of evolving such a search engine? You know, like if, if I have... Um, domain experts who could actually label results for me for these queries. Could I mm -hmm. somehow integrate this into the process with Swirl? Absolutely. So that brings me actually nice lead into the third uh, use case that, that people are, are starting to look at with Swirl. So exactly what you said. Uh, maybe I'm trying to build the chat GPT of my business, okay? Maybe it doesn't even have to be that. Maybe it has to be something even a simpler version. How would I automate handling of an exception when processing a mortgage, as an example? How could I automate that? That's really hard. That is probably not a rules-based system, but it's exactly what you said. I need labels, right? So you're going to have your humans go scour whatever, the various locations, Slack and Teams and various products, and hopefully they find them and they label them. Why not use MetaSearch for that? So if you can MetaSearch those things, and use the language model, right, to basically say, I'm going to label anything over a certain score as being about this thing. Then I give it a bunch of labels, let it hit, get a bunch of targets, let it go find those things, pull the documents, because you will need the documents. The difficulty of pulling documents compared to searching documents in M365 is one permission. So we, we are today, right, if you install Swirl against M365, against your tenant, you are granting permission for Swirl on behalf of some user, right, to search through the, the OneDrive files. So you could also give it permission to fetch those files. So use Swirl to find the documents that are about the exception handling across silos, label the ones that are above a certain threshold. Perhaps you could display those in a UI and let the um, let the analyst check the labels. You could use a cool tool like Prodigy as an example, right? From Explosion, the same folks who make Spacey, which is what we use in, in, in Swirl. Um, 
And I think from there, you would say you might, if you trusted the labels, if the labels were good enough, you could actually do your first run, right? Take 25 or 40% or whatever your preferred number of the labeled results out, build a machine learning model with the rest, and then test with the, you know, with the holdout set, do the, you know, if it's bad, build a confusion matrix, et cetera, et cetera. There you go. And at least now you're reviewing and refining and adjusting the threshold as opposed to going and starting with hand labeling of data. Yeah. Yeah. That's you, that's a great application for meta search and language models. Exactly. And you explained basically kind of like in the in the most straightforward way, you know, in a machine learning algorithm, uh, machine learning model training, testing, validation, right? Which doesn't escape in the um search world doesn't escape from this. I think this is amazing. Um, you chose as the model for your product, uh, open source. You have some thoughts on this. I, I really like this question when I ask this to, I think I asked it to Bob Van Lloyd from VV8 as well. You know, why did you guys, you know, looking at your competition, let's say Pinecone didn't choose open source for some reasons that are valid for them, but you guys mm. did. And so did you. What makes you believe in this model work better? Um, because in some sense, it does require a lot of like public facing work, right? You need to explain, you need to document, you need to review pull requests with all the goodies that come with this, of course, right? But there Absolutely. is, a, there is a, an extra work um, involved, uh, but you definitely get some benefits. What, what, what is your thinking here? The truth is I've been an open source person forever. Um, I, I just believe in it, whether it was, you know, Jeff Hammerbacker's amazing comment about how it's you know, too bad that everyone's spending their time on clicks, right? And he, the, he believes that the, the data science approach benefits hugely from, from open source. That's so true. Um, Joseph Jacks, the notable VC, right, has written so much about it. It's open source software that's really eating the world. Um, it's eating it at a considerably higher rate. And the reason I think is it's a few things. One is trust. One is trust. You know, uh, during the pandemic, I think the large enterprise saw a lot of promising young ventures just not make it. And if you bet on one of those technologies, you probably didn't get the technology or maybe you did, right? I, I don't know, but there was a certain amount of risk involved in that. And open source does, although people I don't think want to take the code and run with it, they want to know that they could if they had to. The second thing though, the trust is much deeper when you have a commercial company that supports open source, the so-called commercial open source model, because it does require that public investment, that public discipline. We're all about people using it. There's no sales. Nobody has that title. We're here to make people successful using it. And I'm not sure, um, to be honest with you, how all the different ways it's going to evolve, but we want to evolve in line with what the actual community needs. Um, you know, I, I think you start with a kernel of an idea, right? And I've worked in search enough to have that. But beyond that, it, it's it's a collective thing. Um I love the way Vespa, as an example, right, is so open to like, look at how well it's evolving in the, you know, place that, that uh, in the community that needs it. I think there's a similar community and what is out there for them are a bunch of potentially, right, some good and some unknown vendors, some interesting open source products, some of which might take a lot of work to hook together. And maybe, you know, there are stories about 
super hot projects where there's one committer and they go on vacation for two months and everything falls apart or they lose interest after two years and they leave with 2,000 tickets. So it's good to know that there's a little commercial entity, um, but ultimately aren't the greatest innovations coming from open source, open AI, most of the pieces out there, that's why there've been so many replications. And that's the last piece of it, it's provable. You know, uh, you can take my word for it. You can look at all the charts and stuff, but with two commands, if you have Docker running, you can get Swirl going and you can see it for yourself. Yeah, and I think if, that... if, if, if it doesn't do something, well, help us, make, we'll, make, we'll make it better. Sorry, go ahead. That, exactly, exactly. No, I mean, that, that exactly proves it because um, however magical the software is, if you are the engineer, you really want to like, you know, open the engine and see what's going on there. How can I modify this? Um, how can I plug this in? Because if if it's not open, I guess, well, maybe maybe someone will, will, will blame me and say, hey, no, this is wrong. But, you know, if it's like an API that I need to pay for, what's the path for me to get into hacking? Should I buy it on my own credit card or should I call my manager and say, hey, can you... Well, and usually what happens if you look at Pinecone, for example, they will have, they will allocate like an, a free tier, right? And so you can kind of hack with free tier. If you run out, then you'll call your manager, I guess. Right. And nothing wrong with that too. I mean, but I think that that's just a facilitation of the try and buy process. It's still a commercial company. You can't know for sure, right? And, and, and honestly, that works for many companies. There's no one size fits all. My point is this, I think for solving complex, the kinds of complex multi-silo problems in the large enterprise where, where I have been very lucky to work before and where I think at least to some degree, I hear about the problems, right? Even if I don't understand them, I hear about the problems. Open source is the winning model because it is so tailorable. You, you know, no one has the same thing. Everybody has seven of everything, I think, in the large enterprise. And then there's regulation and compliance, regulatory systems, all that stuff. Those things are the ones, those are the actual barriers. So open source is most adoptable in that regard. And then I think as long as there's someone who, you know, as long as there's some option to say, well, they're not disappearing, right? They're not, there's still someone to help us who really knows how this thing works. Then it's, it's safe and tailorable. And that's what's really driving so much of, of uh, the growth, the incredible growth in the software world. And again, chat GPT, right? Yeah. Came from open methods, not... It's being commercialized, but that's no surprise. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't probably exist if, like, just yesterday I was hacking something for going to bed, and it was super slow because I think it was U.S. daytime, and so everyone was probably hacking there as well. But I was fine with that. It was typing slowly, giving me some code snippets. But could it have given me these code snippets if they were not online, if they were not, like, on GitHub or somewhere else, right? So I think Absolutely. it's kind of like standing on the shoulders of giants again. Totally, I, I completely agree with you. And it's extremely limited. Look, it was trained at least partly the, the, the non-code part, right? It was on Reddit. It reads like Reddit. It has a little bit of a know-it-all-y, you know, uh, and it gives the sort of like consensus answer. Now, that's great for code as long as the consensus data is modern, current, and available. So it's never going to teach you, it probably won't teach you that much about enterprise integration patterns and enterprise workloads, but it'll teach you a lot about open source. Um, I write with it, I try to write with it almost every day. And I can say this, it's very good at filling in a class function. If you teach it a class, it's very good at that. 
that seems to be like, and that's really, I think, commodity work, right? How to connect to X. It's very, very disruptive there. It's also potentially disruptive to a lot of natural language tasks. I think that's the way it is because it is, at the end of the day, a giant natural language model, right? So it's it's not surprising. It can do things like translation and it's very good at rewriting a query to make it broader. It knows how to rewrite a query to make it Boolean. Those, those are never going to change. But getting the data to it, Again, if you want to build the chat GPT of mortgage exception handling, you're going to need to pull a lot of internal data, label it carefully. That's that, and that, and you might discover you don't have enough. That could also be the case, right? There's a whole synthetic data market that's ready to solve that problem. So, um, yeah. but in the large enterprise, I think it's much more the other problem. We can't get to it. We know it's there. On that front, have you actually considered um, implementing a chat GPT plugin so that? I can go as a user, configure things, add my tokens, and now boom, I yeah. can search my internal data lakes. So we have we are integrated with ChatGPT. There's a connector, so you can query it. We by default send every query to it. We also have a query processor, and we will soon have a result processor that will summarize your results for you. But frankly, I think several people have already done stuff like that. So you just copy and paste the links. You can probably get that. I I think that's um that's really an essential piece of it. Now to query, like generate queries from ChatGPT, I think that's easy to do, right? Someone can do that. But this is my point. There will be other GPTs. We refer to ChatGPT as a question answer, right? Or question. So if you say question colon, put your question in, we'll send it to ChatGPT. I am sure people are looking at the amazing platforms you've just mentioned, right? All of them. Those are going to end up deployed in different parts of the enterprise answering questions, summarizing, right? Extracting, predicting, some, uh, prescribing. There will be all those things out there. And the key will be, how do you get at them? Yeah, It's still the problem, right? Just because you have something that will comment on the financial implications of a, of a, a federal uh, rule change, for example, right? Doesn't mean anyone's gonna go look at it. So, but if you made sure that um, every day or whatever it is, or every that we were checking for new temporal updates from that. And those were being pushed out to the people who needed to know that and who read it, especially if you could check that they read it. If you could imagine doing something like pushing information to analysts or somebody who's taking action on it and then tracking to see who read it and then watching their performance. I am sure that that will be a thing in the financial services world. You know, it's a tough world. There's, they're very used to a high level of, of governance, if you will. But, um, but I think that that's the kind of system that will ultimately produce the automation where the chat GPT will be able to solve the mortgage exception. So on its own, 90% of the time, right? 10% of the time engaging a human. Yes, that's somewhat scary, but I think it could also be liberating if done well. And I think there is a big discussion on this topic going on. How do we collectively as a humanity, you know, make sure that this tech doesn't host us, right? Doesn't just kick us out of our professions or, you know, we still have a way to, I mean, even just going back to yesterday's example, I was going really in circles. I was just drawing some pins on the map using chat GPT and it couldn't get exactly the crux of what I was asking. And so I went to the kitchen. I, I, I thought just for two minutes and I thought, okay, I can just break down my code in two parts without telling chat GPT what I'm doing and just run everything in my ID and boom, I'm done because I was literally going in circles and maybe it's just me 
unable to you know engineer better prompts or engineer better questions or maybe chat gpt does have limitations as well you never know <laughs> but it did help me probably like 90 percent of the work was done using that interaction like i would have spent several half a days as they call them or whatever evenings figuring out all these things like what library should i use to connect uh, to open source uh, uh, map or whatever you know how do i draw pins <laughs> absolutely the uh the chat gpt is the perfect uh replacement for the more senior developer who will answer your texts right or <laughs> or your slack sorry dave right dave's mind um you know like that used to you work until you're blocked and then you go find somebody and say okay so i can't figure this out this was pre-internet right now for a long time we had stack trace or uh uh the other thing that chat gpt has completely replaced um yeah stack overflow or stack overflow yeah, right exactly nowadays we have stack overflow for a while we had stack overflow and then now chat gpt it's funny i forgot the name because i use chat gpt instead i haven't googled for a code thing in so long i can't even it replaced your habit right your memory and habit in some sense yeah well you know we all got good at evaluating those right the stack overflow articles like okay so when's it from how many upvotes does it have is there a good response does it have the green check mark ChatGPT is pretty much bringing you back the green checkmarked answer. So there's no point anymore. I, yeah. That's what it's good at. I totally agree with you. It's funny you mentioned this because exactly the same thought crossed my mind when I was interacting with uh, ChatGPT. Because I was like relating to my experience with Stack Overflow, doing some small Android application. And I've run into the issue, which was described in like something like 20 questions and answers on exactly the same topic. And everyone had a green, you know, check mark, upvotes, but nothing worked. And in the end, I found just one of them that worked. <laughs> and, you know, that was like the process in a way, like iterative, repetitive, and also in some sense frustrating. But then in the end, when you achieve it, you know, it's fine. You achieve what you want. With ChatGPT, it's somewhat similar, but the experience is different. I don't need to type that much. I mean, I don't need to type something into Google, then go to Stack Overflow, you know, read read this thing, comprehend it, and then apply it. With ChatGPT, all of this is condensed. It's like all of these steps just condensed and me just literally typing what I want and getting something on the screen, right? This This, this part by itself is amazing. It, it is hard to predict where, how far that will go. But I think that one thing is, is very clear. The M365 silo is probably the most important one going forward because it's gonna kind of automatically be taking the knowledge, which is very present in Outlook, right? Maybe not so much in Calendar, but in your email, there's a lot of knowledge there. In Teams, there's a lot of knowledge there. Documents, probably a decent amount there too, although I think that tends to be more scattered. But effectively, right, ChatGPT was trained from Reddit, which is chat. Teams is chat. Outlook is sort of chat. So there's no doubt that, that maybe those early interactions will come through that channel. But I do think that exactly as you said early on, Microsoft is never going to make it easy to talk to anybody else. They um, still come from that position of, you know, silo dominance or whatever it is. Um, they don't like to work with Salesforce. Salesforce doesn't like to work with them. Nobody likes to use, you know, the non-great product 
in someone else's stack just because we're trying to consolidate. So that's why they, it persists. And uh, that is very real and exacerbates the problem, this, right? The, the walls between the silos and then throw in all the others, right? After you get the basic, whatever, big five, then you have all the elastics and open searches and solars and Postgres and dot, 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 dot. And then to say nothing of the applications. So one, one group is using Swirl actually to look at five different ticket systems. They're all just ticket, eh, you know, U-Track is one, right, from JetBrains, and then they had, they had Jira, and then there's some others, right? And okay, that's a really interesting problem. The, the cost to migrate all that stuff would be just, it's just, it's not even, I don't think it's necessarily that much money. It's just a massive amount of pain, right? If you could figure out how to do it, probably some transfer much, it's not that much money but it is a tremendous amount of work. Yes, uh, I think you probably don't realize yourself yet, but from the way you explain this, it feels like you've invented ChatGPT for the search part. I mean, in some sense, like simplifying things, not actually, as you said, not requesting anyone to physically reinvent things like move data here and there which can take years sometimes like dozens of years people simply don't do this uh, and also access to the data right like today i only remember a fraction of things that i did i literally forget things that i done i've done yesterday i might sometimes reflect and i remember something a week ago or so but it's still it's because of information overload right and i need to make decisions i need to scramble something together quickly uh, on a conference page. How much knowledge do I have myself? You know, and, and if I had that magical search bar where I could have typed something and just get the support material, right? Not to yeah. go all over the place, essentially doing what search engines should do. Just go and check what happened where and when and by whom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There there's so much amazing work and, and time and genius that's gone into some of these apps. I mean, who doesn't love them? Like they're, you know, they're, they all have incredible capabilities and they're evolved. They're, they're growing all the time in a way, right? The idea that you would take data out to try to make sense of it is absurd. It really is. Think of Salesforce. Salesforce has 2000 plus tables to, just to make the application work. Like you're going to extract that. No, you're going to query it. And that's the key, right? And so we're focused on making the querying easy and understandable. Simplicity. You know, I've, I've worked on some amazing products that were not simple. And I'm sorry for some of them, right? Not being that simple. But at the end of the day, I think today in the enterprise, it's got to get easier. And there's got to be alternatives to indexing. And so thus the simplicity. Amazing. Here comes my favorite question as we get closer to the end of this amazing podcast episode. Um, the question of why. You've done a lot in software engineering. You've done quite a lot in search. Uh, you've mentioned on all these companies, you know, like Fast, um, which, you know, product became like Vespa and so on. You're building Swirl. Why? Like what keeps you motivated to do this? Um, and as amazing as, as it is, like you, you're doing a lot of things and also in the open, 
what motivates you to stay in this topic of search? You know, whether or not it's been searched, data integration has been the thing that I've I've always liked. Um, I started my career at John Hancock Financial Services, working in marketing, doing customer segmentation. It was interesting stuff, but really, the problem the company couldn't solve was how to view twelve completely separate product lines in one way. And they didn't had no idea, right? 110 year old company had no idea that it had a Pareto. Actually, it was somewhat worse. Like 10% or 15% of the customers were producing 80% of the premiums. Everybody got treated equally, right? It was like a very old school business that was all about customers without really understanding customers. And it was still massively successful. So <laughs> that's not a knock. They were one of the biggest users of technology. Also, uh, Hancock had the largest IBM mainframe, I think, in the Northeast for many years. Um, but the silo problem was the problem that we had to solve to actually take the company to the level that it could compete with direct mail companies because direct mail companies had a lower cost basis and they knew the customer. And that project, quite honestly, is the pattern that I have seen over and over again, regardless of what venture, search has been one of them, but I worked, I was really lucky to work on mortgage uh, processing too. So um, a company called AI Foundry was actually uh, backed by uh, Kodak Alaris, which was the world leader in scanning at the time, right? Um, said, we need to come up with something to do. So we need to do something interesting with this scanning technology. And we'd like to apply it in a market other than, you know, consumer photos or things like that. Try to find a new market. And mortgage turned out to be hot because if you've done a mortgage, right? If you've taken a mortgage, you have this ugly moment of sending them a bunch of documents and then you just have to wait. And then sometimes they go, oh, I need you to do this one again. I believe there's research that showed that something like one third of the applicants drop out every two or three days after, you know, you haven't got back to them with their documents. They just want that all clear, like you're good. So AI Foundry used pretty interesting OCR, zonal technology, classification, text classification to turn the mortgage app into data, not a hundred percent, but the state of the art before was keying it, manually keying it. And then someone would manually review it. So we switched it to review the company was, successful. It was a silo problem. Again, you could think of the different um, types, right, of articles as being fundamentally silos and understanding them was hard and we had to do a lot of modeling and it worked. It worked great, right? Gateless bought the company. Um, that's a, that's a, just another example. We did the same thing in an IoT company most recently where we're basically taking sensor data from healthcare settings, marrying it up with other data like their EHR data and trying to predict you know, likelihood of various conditions. So it's always the silo problem. And frankly, every single one of these ventures would have benefited from something like Swirl. So that's why I did it. It's because to be honest with you, I think the data problem is huge. I'm passionate about it. And I think it's important to solve it because frankly, some of the service problems, right, that we all suffer when we're out in the field dealing with large companies, it's because they just don't have the data. They're not just trying to be mean or be clueless, right? Sometimes it's like, it's a hard problem to solve. We expect a lot now. As an engineer, right, I'm expecting chat GPT level responses pretty soon. And yet what we have is Siri who like can barely figure out to turn off the alarm, you know, when, <laughs> when it's going on. So there are going to be some bumps. There's going to be some sudden pulls and pushes. Um, but I think the important thing is that, and why you asked me why do it open? Because prove it. Awesome. Don't take this my is, word for it. Yeah. This is an amazing answer. Um, so data is literally king and 
the one who has universal access to data wins, right? In so many senses of this word. This is this is so great. This is so good uh, chatting to you, Sid. I've learned a lot. I was wondering if there's something you would like to announce, um, something is cooking, or you simply want to invite developers to a tutorial and to send a pull request. Well, I would love to do that. First of all, we have webinars every couple of weeks. Please come if you're interested. Just it's a just you just need to put an email address, I think, into the reg form. Um, we are also totally available on Slack. It's there's you know, totally there's we don't have sales. It's free. Just connect up. You'll talk to support or customer success, I guess, is the more uh, more appropriate term these days. But they're here. We're here to help. That includes me and everybody else on the team. There's only five of us. So um, but we're all here to help. Um, we would love to hear what you want to do with Swirl, what you're doing with Swirl. Um, we are here to write. If you need help with a search provider, we'll write it for you or help you help you get it working. Um, what I can say for sure is this. Next month, version 2.0 will drop. It will be something you can one-click try, and it will have the M365 integration that I talked about, so the full ability to deploy it to your tenant in our hosted version or just to take the Docker, run with it, hook that up so it will support OAuth 2 and OIDC. Many, many more features. We'll be elaborating on the things you can do with it over the you know next couple of months and particularly in May. Um, and I've just really would beg people to try it and tell us what you think right that's that's my uh my ask so if if and if anybody can uh if you want to work on it you know we're always delighted to to accept pull requests and even guide anybody as to where to start right so that's where we are we're very we're very young and we're uh, trying to figure this out and energetic and knowledgeable and i think uh we will link everything you mentioned of course in the episode show notes so everyone can click at their will and you know follow and learn from you as i did today and i'm i i really want to allocate time also to to participate in one of your webinars but I'm, I'm pretty sure i will learn more that would be great we are definitely bringing in folks we had again kmw uh, which makes Spyglass the open source project. Um, we had the author of Quergy, uh came came previously, Renee. It was great fun. Um, we hope to have him on again because I think we could learn. I mean, I could listen to him for an hour, uh, talk about the things they're doing. So and many others. So absolutely, would love to have you on. And and if you know anybody who wants to talk about this stuff too, please, I'd love to have them on as well. Fantastic. Thanks for pushing the envelope of search. Keep pushing. Um, I wish you all the success that you can get and beyond. And I hope we can chat more down the, the line, down the road as you got as you guys uh, grow. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure you will. Thank you so much for the, the confidence. We will love to share uh, updates in future, especially I'll, I'll be very psyched to show you some of the machine learning stuff we're talking about uh, as, as a case. We definitely want to build that as a use case and make it one click easy to, to do that. So. Fantastic. But yeah, let's keep in touch. I loved it too. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Obviously, I've listened to the Vespa um, uh, cast several times. And, and uh, you know, I think please keep it up. It's awesome. There's not enough people focused on this incredible area of technology. You know, it's, we're, we're talking about stuff. I think it's going to become more common, but it's still a little bit unknown. Yeah, appreciate your kind words. It's thanks to you makers. Thank you so much, Sid, for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.